Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace. And apart from that grace, Lord, there is no healing for our souls. And we thank you, Lord, for the great work of our Lord Jesus Christ that makes a relationship with you possible. Thank you for these few minutes that we have to sit and to reflect and to remind ourselves of our position in Christ. To remind ourselves of the great privilege of being your church and being your people. And Father, our prayer this morning would be that our obedience would match our intention. And as we take our Bibles now and receive from you, Lord, may your Holy Spirit do your work within us. Strengthen us, encourage, enlighten and illumine through the ministry of your Holy Spirit as he takes the word in that marvelous way. And it works in us transforming us and conforming us to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, that this would be a beneficial time of hearing the word, of implementing the truths of your word, and of worshiping you together as we sit quietly before you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and in Jesus' name we've gathered here, Father. Amen. Well, when I was a youth pastor in my first life, one of the questions that I often had asked of me by young people was this. Pastor Van, how do I know God's will for my life? Now, I used to think that was a teenage question, but I'm finding out that there's a lot of adults that are wandering around saying, how do I know God's will for my life? In fact, I wonder how many of you, if, uh, if you had a $100 bill in your pocket this morning, and Jesus came walking in and he said, for a $100 bill, I'll tell you my will for you for the rest of your life, that you'd fork over that $100 bill in a, in a second, wouldn't you? And sometimes it's hard to know God's will, isn't it? God's will is kind of a big thing. This whole reality that God has a plan for my life. That God, you know what? I want to stop just a minute. Gwen, good morning. Stand up, Gwen. You see this young lady right here? Her first day back from open heart surgery. Right? And praise God. Yep. And God has a will and a plan, doesn't he? Gwen, welcome back. You look good, and we're so thankful to have you back with us. It's been a number of weeks of recovery. But this matter of God's will is something that we just, we long to know, don't we? And we think, we know that God is at work in us. We believe Philippians 1.6, right? He who has begun a good work in you, yes, I'm saved, and God through Christ has begun a good work in me, I will be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun this work will continue his work and bring it about to completion even unto the day of Christ's returning. But how convinced are you that you are living out God's will for your life? Do you see God's will? Sometimes it's clear, isn't it? Sometimes you can really see God is at work in me. And then other times it's cloudy, isn't it? It's like, I have no idea if God is at work in me right now or what his will is. And I'm confused. You'd, you'd give a hundred bucks for the pair of like 3D Jesus, no God's will glasses, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you like that? Oh, now I can see what God is doing. 
Now I know what all the last 10 years has been about. Now I know why I work at this place. Now I know why I fell and twisted my ankle. Now I know why I had that flat tire in the rain. Now I know. You see, wouldn't you do that if you could just see through the clouds, through the fog, what is God doing in your life? Are you living out his will and his purpose? Well, I invite you back to Genesis, to chapter 45. And this morning, we're going to learn from the life of Joseph what it means in a very real and practical ways to see God's will unfold in your life. And I want us to learn some principles that I hope will be very helpful to you about waiting upon God and letting God work in your life Letting God be God and allowing him to accomplish his purposes in us. See, we're so caught up in the the here and now of what God's... Do I buy the red truck or the blue truck? I don't know. God, what is your will? You know? And yet, sometimes God will reveal himself in that way. But there is a a tremendous amount of decision-making. And we're not going to unwrap this whole concept of God's sovereign involvement in our decision-making and how they come together. But I want us to be challenged in our hearts this morning that for those who have their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and we're his people, and we're his church, that he gets you where he wants you. And he will, if you have a heart of surrender, and you have an attitude of willingness to be the person God wants you to be, you might live through some days, some weeks, months, even years of fog. But I want you to grow today in your confidence in the sovereign oversight of God in your life. Let's read our text. Before we do that, though, let me back up and let's just remind ourselves, we'll not take long at all, but I've noticed some new families coming in since before Christmas. We had the month of December where we talked about our Christmas messages. We had the month of January. We were challenging ourselves as a church to kind of be awake and alert this year and be what God wants us to be. And now we're back to Genesis and we're in chapter 45 for a couple years. We've been working our way through receiving from the Lord what he has for us here. And we're in the life of Joseph. So even if you don't know too much about your Bible, you know, Joseph, right? The guy with the coat of many colors that, um, Dottie Rambo or somebody, um, Dolly, the one with the poofy hair in the, in the amusement center. She sang a coat about many colors, right? And Joseph, that guy. And his brothers, his brothers, didn't she? Yeah. And his brothers, remember they beat him up, they threw him in a hole in the ground because he was favored by his father Jacob. And his brothers hated him. His father had made that beautiful coat for him. He had elevated him above his older brothers. They were jealous. They wanted nothing to do with it. And then they threw him in the pit. They were talked about killing him. By the time they were done eating lunch, they looked up and they see a a camel train of Ishmaelite slave traders coming through. And they say, that's it. We'll sell him to the slave traders, to the Ishmaelites, and make a few bucks off this guy. They pull him out of the hole, sell him to the slave traders, and off he goes, tied behind a camel, screaming and hollering and yelling for his brothers. And they're like, good riddance. And off he goes. And when we hit chapter 45 of Genesis, we are now 22 years into his stay in Egypt. You know about Egypt a little bit now, right? 
If you've been paying attention to the news, you know where it is on the map anyway right now. You need to pray for that situation and pray for the safety of Israel in all of this. And what's taking shape is very interesting. And so Joseph is in Egypt. And you'll recall that though he started out as a servant and a slave, he was purchased by Potiphar, that God had his hand of blessing upon him, worked his way up through the ranks, was the leader in Potiphar's home, and then remember the false accusation of Potiphar's wife. He refused her advances. She screamed. He was handcuffed and put in prison again. God used that for a time when he interpreted the dreams before the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, remember? And the, the Pharaoh discerned that in Joseph he had a wise man who could administrate all that God had revealed through the dreams. And do you remember the dreams? The seven fat years and then the seven lean years to follow. And how the cows, big cows ate the little cows and the big corn stalks and wheat stalks ate the little stalks. Seven, and Joseph interprets for them exactly what God was doing. And off he goes to work, now elevated to second in command in Egypt. And you'll see in our text this morning that for all practical purposes, Joseph is running Egypt. He's the man in Egypt. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. And where we jump in now is the tail end of the story where his brothers, remember, because we're two years into the famine, after a few months of famine, they had come down from Canaan to Egypt because the whole world was in famine and they came down to get food and they sent them back. And remember, he sent them back. He recognized his brothers. They didn't recognize him. Put, it, put their money in their bags and so forth. Told them if they had a little brother, they better show up. Next time they show up, they better have their little brother with them because he found out they had a little brother, Benjamin. Right? He knew that. Then down they come, he remembered his little brother, and then down they come, second time for more food, and that time he, he's going to put some pressure on them and test them and find out what's going on in the hearts of his brothers. What are they thinking about now? What are they all about? They still don't recognize him. Do you remember uh, in, we did 43 to 45 all the last time we were here trying to capture this story, and they had kind of a theme of an undeserved favor. And Joseph had invited him the second time back into Egypt, right to his home, to eat at his table. And that's when he put them right in their birth order at the table, remember? And, uh, and they couldn't believe it. What, there's 11 or 12 of them, and, and they're sitting there eating at his table. And the mathematical odds of him just lucking out and putting them in their birth order is astronomical. And they still didn't get it. And then their baby brother, Benjamin, he puts like way more food on his plate. Then he does the rest, and they're like, I don't know what's going on here, but it's really weird. But they still can't figure out that Joseph is their brother. You see, they really believe he's dead, don't they? And they have no idea. Well, Jacob, their father, did not want them, remember, to bring Benjamin back into Egypt with him. And Joseph puts his finger on that, and he knows the best way he can test their hearts as to whether or not they would let another little brother die and break their old father's heart is by tampering with Benjamin. And where we enter our story here, we have Judah, who's the head, who will be the head of the tribe of the Lion of Judah, through whom the promised Messiah will come, right? And Judah reveals, sort of representative on behalf of all the brothers, that they really have changed. For the last 22 years, they have regret, they have sorrow, they have some repentance, and so Judah is now standing before Joseph. They're trying to go back to, to 
home to Canaan with the grain, but Joseph wants to keep Benjamin, and Judah is begging Joseph to swap out Benjamin for himself. And in doing all of this, Joseph reveals their thinking. Let's read it in chapter 44, verse 33. Let's just look at it there. You see, they've been... They've been begging him. If you look up a few verses, he says in verse 31, you see, if my father sees that the boy's not there, he'll die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Verse 32, your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave In place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. And Joseph knows now that their hearts have cracked. That there is remorse and sorrow over their sin of the past. Remember, they lied to their father and they just hung around the tent when their father was weeping and wailing. And they let him believe that his son was dead. And for 22 years, the old man, every hour of every day, believes that Joseph is dead. They think he's dead now too. But Joseph has gotten Judah to speak on behalf of the brothers that they cannot bear up under the reality of the fact that another brother would die and that their father's heart would be broken. It would kill him and put him in the grave. And so, verse 1 of 45, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence! So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard all about it. I guess those last servants, as they were shooed out of the room, all of Joseph's brothers are there, Joseph is there, second in command of all of Egypt, tells his servants, get out, get out, shut the doors. He can hardly hold back the sobbing and the the intense emotion of the reality that he is going to reveal to himself that we're still a family here. And by the time they closed the door, he evidently wailed so loud and snorted and choked and snotted so loud that they heard about it and all the talk went through the servants' ranks all the way to Pharaoh. Joseph's breaking down in there with those guys. It's amazing. And Joseph said to his brothers, verse 3, I am Joseph. Now I want to tell you something that I think it would be really great when we get to heaven to be able to have a great big screen and be able to watch some rewinds, some reruns of things that have happened. I'm going to call up David and Goliath first. That's the first one on my list. Hey, Lord, let me see David and Goliath. I just want to see that one, you know, and it's got to be great, doesn't it? But I'll tell you, this has to be high on the list. Can you imagine? They believe with all their heart, Joseph's dead. 22 years have gone by. And he says, my brothers, it's me, it's Joseph. Look what happens. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Of course they were. Their ears heard one thing, their whole mind I mean, you talk about intellectual whiplash, just being able to try to process in their thinking what they're looking at, this man. How could this be? And their brains and their ears are telling him one thing, and yet their, their whole processes are set up to understand another thing. And then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. They can't even speak. 
This is a hugely emotional moment. They don't know if he's going to kill them or not. Surely they didn't recognize him. In the culture of the day, Joseph would have been clean-shaven. He would have been very manicured, very done up. He would have had certain kinds of jewelry and, and, and outfit garb on, fitting to his position, very unlike what his brothers would have worn. Rough, uh, heavy woven clothing of, uh, of shepherds, people who had been traveling, men who had been traveling, staying uh, on the ground, no doubt, camped out, unable to bathe, unshaven, woolly and bushy. And there they are. And they're just, they just can't put it in their head. And so then Joseph says, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. It's incredible, isn't it? Now I want you to get what Joseph says next. And to get it, you have to understand, these guys wanted to kill him. These guys, he looked up at them, at their faces as they looked in that hole when they dropped him. Brothers, please! And they looked down and probably just spit tobacco juice between his eyes. And then when they walked, and then when they pull him up out of there, he thought, surely I'm going to get to go free. And then they sell him to Ishmaelite slave traders. And as he screams and he's tied up, brothers, please, brothers. And off they go. And to cover their shame, they probably laughed and cracked jokes. For 22 years, he could have been festering inside saying, the day will come. The day will come. We're not going to talk about this today. We're likely to revisit it. But the first part of our story today, and we're not going to talk about it, is this. Number one, part one of this story is Joseph's reconciliation with people of the past. Joseph's reconciliation with people of the past. We're not going to talk about it, but I want you to recognize it because there's a big question that comes out of it, I think. So here it is. 22 years, people who hate him, people who have hurt him, people who abused him, people who rejected him, people who wanted him dead, the worst enemies of his life. And now look what he says. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. And God sent me ahead of you to preserve you, a remnant of, on the earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Let's stop right there and address a little interpretive question. Is What did Joseph mean when he said, I have been made by God, I've been made the father of Pharaoh? I think what it implies, historians believe that by this time in Joseph's service, a new Pharaoh had just come into, into power. And he was a young Pharaoh. And so I suspect that what happened is in the transition of power, Joseph maintains his elevated position of wisdom and oversight and, and preservation of all of Egypt. And the young Pharaoh was wise enough to look to Joseph, who at this point is older than he, though Joseph's not real old yet. And he looks to Joseph. And so in practical, practical daily function and, 
and manners uh, um, and management, the Pharaoh looks to Joseph for input. And in a way of speaking, Joseph is saying, I'm the father of the Pharaoh. I tell the boy everything to do. He's a teenage Pharaoh or a young 20s Pharaoh. He doesn't, he's just coming into his power years. And so for all practical purposes, while the famine is on and in Joseph's power of management, he runs the whole place. There is no one that is going to usurp authority over him because Pharaoh's not going to mess with him because he's the one that has the ability to hold it all together. And that's what he's just saying. God has elevated me to where I literally run all of Egypt. Now hurry back, verse 9, to, to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. Let's go ahead and read the rest of the chapter so we have it down. Then we'll come back. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. This is a, this is a worldwide famine. Come back here, I'll take care of you. Verse 10, we already read that. Verse 12, you can see for yourselves and so can my brother Benjamin that it is really I who am speaking to you. So by this time, evidently Benjamin is shouldered up to his older brother Joseph and got his arm around his neck or something while Joseph's talking. We don't know a lot about this conversation, but it must have been some hour that they spent together. Tell my father, verse 13, about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then, verse 14, just just imagine this. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and he wept. He loved his brother. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And then look at this, verse 15. And he kissed all his brothers and he wept over them. And afterwards... His brothers talked with him. We do not have any record of that conversation. It would have been one to listen in on, wouldn't it? When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. You are also directed to tell them, do this. Take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives and get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings because the best of all Egypt will be yours. This is leave all your junk home and come down here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to re-outfit you. It's basically Joseph is told by Pharaoh, use the company credit card and take care of your family. So the sons of Israel did this, verse 21, and Joseph gave them carts as Pharaoh had commanded. And he also gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them, he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. And this is what he sent to his brother, to his father, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey. And then he sent his brothers away. As they were leaving, he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. Isn't that a funny line? (laughs) What do you think they had to talk about on the way home? You stop and think for a minute. They had to go home and they had to tell their pop. They had to go home and they had to tell pop, hey dad, we really have something that we have to tell you. 
We lied to you. In fact, we brutally deceived you, Father. And remember when we brought the coat to you and it was soaked in blood? That was goat's blood. It wasn't Joseph's blood at all. And do you remember when you laid in your tent and you wouldn't rise and eat breakfast and you laid there for days and you wailed? We stuffed quack grass in our ears because we knew it was all a hoax. What a moment it must have been when they went to Jacob. We don't have that conversation either recorded for us. But Joseph knows his brothers, and I guess he can just imagine them bickering and bantering. If you hadn't said this, and it was your idea, and you tell Pop. No, I'm not telling Pop. You have to tell Pop. We'll all tell Pop. No, let's go. You're the oldest. Well, you're the youngest. Don't quarrel, Joseph says. So they went out up out of Egypt, and they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. And they told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact... He is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. What a moment. One translation says, his heart stood still. How does he process this? It says at first, he did not believe them, but when they told him everything, Joseph had said to them, And when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, I guess so. And Israel said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is alive and I will go see him before I die. Come on, boys, load the carts. Let's get out of here. What an incredible moment. Well, this passage has a couple of uh, very important and practical realities in it. The first I've already mentioned The first part of the passage is the emphasis on reconciliation with people from the past. What would you do if you were Joseph? You have somebody that stomped on you 22 years ago? You got somebody who wanted you dead 22 years ago? You got somebody that tried to ruin your life 22 years ago? And would you be able to look them in the eye today, 22 years later? Would you be able to look them in the eye? And look what he says. Don't be distressed and don't be angry. Don't even worry about it. How could Joseph say that? That's the question, which leads us to the second part of the teaching of the passage. How could Joseph say, guys, don't worry yourself with it. Let it go. Just because you stepped on my face, took everything I own, tried to destroy my life, emasculated my youth. Don't worry about it. How do you say that? Here's how you say it. Part two of the teaching is, it is the realization of God's plan for my life. The realization of God's sovereign overriding plan for my life enables Joseph to have a great sense that God has his hand on him and that he is directing the affairs of his life. Look what he says. Look at verse five. He says, Don't be angry with yourselves. Uh, It was to save lives. Look at here, circle it. That God sent me here ahead of you. God sent me here. You didn't send me here. Look at verse 7. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve the remnant. That's nothing other than a reference to the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Look at verse 8. It wasn't you that sent me here. It was God. 
Just because you laid your hands on me and threw me in the pit and sold me to the Israel. It was God that did that. Look at verse 9. Now hurry back to my father. And this is what you tell him. That Joseph says, God has made me Lord over all of Egypt. Do you have any kind of a sense in your life that the will of God is unfolding through the circumstances of your life, that in his sovereign overriding power of our decision-making and of the affairs of mankind, that he is bringing things to pass in your life that maybe you don't even know. And maybe you are frustrated with God about knowing his will, and he's working his will in your life right there. And so I think there's a number of really important lessons about the unfolding will of God in our lives, learned from Joseph. If you want to write them down, I've entitled them Insights About the Plan of God for My Life. Insights About the Plan of God for My Life. And if you want to put a parenthesis under that, you can say, From the Life of Joseph. So rather than just looking at what God did to Joseph and then making application, let's just bring it into the first person and let's just take Joseph's story and let's turn it into our story and let's take the circumstances here and let's learn the lessons that God has for him. You see, this strong confidence in God's oversight of his life, in Joseph's life, brought great relief from anger and stress. You see that? His confidence that God was overseeing the, uh, the occurrences of his life made it so that he didn't hold a grudge against these guys. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you do. God has his hand on me, unfolding his will in my life. Now, I need to tell you that this list I'm going to give you of lessons about, that we learn from Joseph about God's will in our lives isn't for people who the circumstances of your life are dictated now by your purposeful sin. Okay? If you go out and get drunk, and you walk out in the highway, and you get in front of a big old tractor trailer, and it goes splat, all right? Don't try to say, okay, God, what were you teaching me in all of this? Because you are, at that point, you are out of God's will. I'm not saying that God doesn't even use the stupid choices of our lives to teach us a lot of things. But I'm specifically addressing the person here who is seeking God. The person who says, Lord, for years I've just tried to live for you. And I still have no idea what your will is in my life. I still just don't know what you're doing. Well, there's no way we're going to get through this, so let me give you the first couple on our list, okay? And we'll come back to it. And our goal here is so that we can say with confidence, like Joseph, that we have a sense of God's sovereign oversight in our lives, that he who began a good work in us will continue to perform it and is continuing to perform it, and he is getting me where he wants me. Number one lesson on God's will, insight on God's will, about God's plan for my life from the life of Joseph is this. Number one, the plan of God for my life might very well be about other people. Number one, the plan of God for my life might very well be about other people. See, this brings perspective. This brings perspective. We're all worried about me, my life. What am I doing? How come this? What am I supposed to do with all this? And it could be that maybe even for years, God has been at work in you to do a work in somebody else. That ever occur to you? Look what it says in verse five. 
Look what it says in verse 5. And now do not be distressed, he says to his brothers, and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives. It wasn't about my comfort. It wasn't about what, what was cool to me. It was that God was strategically placing me to impact the lives of other people. In fact, it was for the very reason of keeping alive the promise that God had given to Abraham that he would indeed make a great nation out of him. That brings perspective of God's sovereign oversight, doesn't it? That the plan of God for my life might very well be about other people. I was thinking about this with my brother-in-law this week. My brother-in-law, Howard Merrill, is a pastor in Covington, Virginia. He's been there for about 35 years down in, on I-64. One of, the, one of the more intelligent decisions he's ever made in his life was to marry my oldest sister. I don't know what that says about her, but he made a good choice. And le- uh, two weeks ago, uh, he's kind of a handyman guy. He can do a lot of things. I love my brother-in-law, Howard, and he's been a great role model to me. But he was down in his shop, in his wood shop, working with a table saw, and he wasn't being careful. He had left his blade up too high, and he was pushing like a one-by-four through to, to narrow it down. And he said, I was even using a push stick, which for him is good. And he was using a push stick. And he said, then I took my left hand and I reached across to pick it up on the other side of the blade. And I let my thumb hang down and it raked all the, all the meat off the bottom of his thumb. Didn't take the nail out. And he had to get 15 stitches. And then last Monday, when he went to the doctor to get it looked at, they said, you have to go to the hospital right now. It's not healing correctly. And so all this week, he didn't have this on his agenda. On Monday, when he went to the doctor to get his bandage changed, he ends up in the Allegheny Regional Hospital, and he's there all week long with a big old IV in his arm, getting super-powered IVs, having his thumb hanging over the edge of the bed in a soaking pool. For what? God, what are you doing? I don't have time for this. God... Surely this isn't your will for my life. Do you know that it, and it occurred to me that, that maybe what God was unfolding in my brother-in-law's life had way less to do with him than it had to do with a whole bunch of people on the third floor of the Allegheny Regional Hospital. And that God was doing a work in his life, and God does all kinds of things at the same time. But the plan of God for Howard Merrill's life last week might have had very little to do with him and a whole lot to do with other people. Maybe God had someone's path to come and intersect that day and he needed a philosophizing country preacher who had a Bible open on his lap all week long to tell him about Jesus. Maybe. Let me give you two more really quickly so that we're even with the first service and then I can pick it up without stressing myself out. Secondly, the plan of God for my life might include seasons of suffering and difficulty. That kind of fits Howard Merrill's illustration as well, doesn't it? The plan of God for my life, number two, number two lesson learned from Joseph, insights on God's plan for my life, that it might include seasons of suffering and difficulty. Did you see that as well in there? He says in verse six, look what he says. He said, first of all, he said, God sent me ahead of you. Do you realize what a loaded statement that is? Yeah, for, for years... I was a servant, a slave. I got beat up. I got falsely accused. I rotted in a dungeon for years. Why? Oh, God was just doing his will in your life. 
There's nothing wrong. Nothing is out of control. Everything's fine. God's just unfolding his plan for your life. Cha-ching. That's it. But it doesn't feel good. I'm really uncomfortable. In fact, I'm suffering. I'm suffering. You've heard me say it before. If you're ever a part of a ministry that says, come to Jesus so that you'll be happy and fat and wealthy the rest of your life, get out and walk out as fast as you can. Because the testimony, the overriding testimony of Scripture is that often God allows great pressure on His children. God doesn't always make us comfortable and happy. And God might cut your thumb really bad. You say, God didn't do it. I have no idea how to bring together the sovereign control of God and the decision-making of man. Certainly, Howard Merrill reached across that table, didn't he? But certainly God knew that he wasn't trying to be foolish and God allowed something there to accomplish his purposes. How that all comes together, I do not know. But we must not waste the suffering. And God allows suffering in our lives to teach us things he could never teach us any other way. He allows suffering in our lives to allow us to connect with people in a way that we never would connect any other time. And God accomplishes things in our own life, in our hearts, in our thinking, conforming us to the image of Christ and, con- and, and building us up in the faith in ways in suffering if we have the right attitude. Now, I suspect that Joseph was a real man and that there were times he got really angry on the inside. But by and large, we see that God was able to accomplish his purposes in his life because he kept a great attitude, didn't he? He kept a great attitude. Number three, and with this we'll close. The third lesson that we have is the plan of God for my life might also take me places I never really wanted to go. The plan of God for my life might take me places I never really wanted to go. Don't you see that in there? Joseph is learning about the will of God for his life and the plan of God for his life. And the first thing he learned today was that it had a lot to do with other people, not just himself. The second thing he learned was that it included significant seasons of suffering and trouble. And the third thing he's learning, as he's living out five more years of troublesome famine and difficulty, he's learning that the will of God for his life took him places he never dreamed he would be. Do you ever ask yourself those kind of questions? How in the world did I get here? How in the world did I get here? Listen, if you didn't wake up in the morning and try to be dumb, if you didn't wake up in the morning and purposely make bad decisions, which a lot of people do, it's hard to figure out, but we do. And you said, Lord, guide me. Lord, I believe in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Lord, I'm trusting in you with all my heart. I'm trying not to lean on my own understandings. I'm trying to just follow your path, make the way straight. And 20 years later, there you are. And you're like, how in the world did I get here? You're there because the reality of the will of God for our lives often is that his plan is to take us places we never dreamed we'd go. I have a bunch of illustrations for that too. Let's pray. Before I pray, will you just, uh, as we've just started in here a little bit on some things that I think God wants to teach us from this passage about following him and letting God be God. Maybe it's a good time to examine your heart just briefly and say, 
Ask yourself whether or not you've been mad at God lately. Ask yourself if you were like Joseph, would you have been able to reconcile with such highly offensive people? And the offense had gone on for so long. But your confidence in the overriding sovereign plan of God for your life would enable you to look at them and say, you didn't do it, God did. That's hard to put together in our emotions and in our brain. But what I'm getting at this morning and where we're going is, how well have we been doing at letting God be God? Are you self-willed, pouting, shaking your fist at God? Are you able to be quiet and be still and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you to get me from point A to point B, and I have no idea where that's going, but may your will be done. It goes back to one of the key words from last week's message, the word surrender, giving up control, letting God be God. Will you do that this morning? The greatest act of surrender you can do is to admit your sinfulness if you've never done that and believe that Jesus is the Christ. Receive his forgiveness for sin. You can do that right now in your own chair. As we sing, you're also welcome to come forward and pray at the altar or meet with a counselor. We'd be happy to do that. Father, thank you for this great, outstanding young man named Joseph and the ways that he's impacting our lives. And Father, we admit that we, we struggle with knowing your will and always being able to unfold and decipher what is happening in our lives. And so would you renew our ability to have faith in you and to trust in you and then teach us the lessons in the weeks ahead so that we can learn how to walk in obedience and then be able to take our hands off the steering wheel and let you get us where we're supposed to go, even if it takes 22 years. Father, that we would be your church in humble obedience, letting you be God. And us just being your humble servants. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.